Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers using the Library of America as my source material, looking at about 100 pages in each episode. In this episode, I'll be starting uh, a two-episode series on John Steinbeck's novel, Tortilla Flat. So what to say about this? This one, this was a, a tough one for me just to get through. It's a very dense novel, but it also is very lazy. And I, These might be contradictory, but I think that's kind of, it works almost on the level of being the, the it, that's the seems what life is like in the setting that we're given in this novel. Um, uh, on the one hand, not a lot happens, but the book is very um, thin. It's, it's very tight. Um, But yeah, as I said, it just does it in such a lazy way. It, it's, it's actually kind of fun to read. I, I think we might strain ourselves if we try to get too much meaning into it, but uh, I think that's what I'm supposed to do here. Um, now, Steinbeck, now, Tortilla Flat was Steinbeck's breakout novel. It was published in 1935, so we have a, a, it's set in the present, so we have a Depression-era setting, uh, like all these novels, roughly. Well, certainly this one and then in, in Dubious Battle and Mice and Men, these are all Depression novels, right? Its main topic is it's it's the Paisanos of California. The location is Tortilla Flat, which is a rundown district in Monterey, where basically the poor people of Monterey live, mostly um, mostly populated by these Paisanos. The entire story is a series uh, is a series of connected vignettes. So each chapter sort of can be read on its own because each one has a little is like a little episode. Um, and I'll, I'll Steinbeck was trying to make this a bit of an Arthurian. Uh, parallel, and so in the same way that Arthurian legends have a lot of little stories and an overarching setting and characters, that's kind of what Tortilla Flat does. So you can kind of pick it up and just read a few sections and enjoy it as a bunch of short stories. It's more connected, though, than something like Pastures of Heaven, which kind of has the same structure. Uh, here, the stories are all connected by the same characters. There, you had different characters highlighted in each, each story. Uh, here, you have that same set, like six friends living in a house together. Uh, so it, it's kind of a buddy story, too, which is a, a fun way to look at it, I think. So who are these paisanos? Uh, I said the name t a couple times now, but who are they? Well, in California, paisano refers to people of mixed Spanish and Indian background. Right? So basically, you know, the descendants of the Spanish conquest and, and the children of the Spanish conquerors and the Indian women they had children with. And over the generations, of course, those bloodlines get confused and, and diluted. But um, they're Americans, though. They're not. Um, so there's tensions in the novel between um, Latin American Spanish speakers from other parts of so North America, from Mexico, for instance, and these paisanos. These are um, Americans. They speak English, uh, but they're of this local descent. Steinbeck had looked at these people before, actually, most specifically the character of Juanito in To a God Unknown. Um, and here's how he defines them in this novel, Tortilla Flat. What is a paisano? He is a mixture of Spanish, Indian, Mexican, and assorted Caucasian bloods. His ancestors have lived in California for 200, 100 years or two, or two years. He speaks English with a paisano accent and, a, and Spanish with a paisano accent. When questioned concerning race, he indignantly claims pure Spanish blood and rolls up his sleeve to show that the soft inside of his arm is nearly white. His color, like that of the well-browned Mersham pipe, he subscribes to Sunsburned. He is a paisano, and he lives in that uphill district above the town of Madre called Tortilla Flat. 
although it isn't as flat isn't a flat at all now the story is presented as sort of a story of knights and to get a sense of this we could look at the the first part of the story actually right where it opens actually when you speak of Danny's house, you are understood it, it means a unit of which the parts are men, from which came sweetness and joy, philanthropy, and in the end, a mystic sorrow. For Danny's house was not unlike the round table, and Danny's friends were not unlike the knights of it. And this is the story of how that group came into being, and how it flourished and grew to be an organization, beautiful and wise. This story deals with the adventuring of Danny's friends, and the good they did, and with their thoughts and endeavors. In the end, it's a story... This story tells how the talisman was lost and how the group disintegrated. So Steinbeck kind of gives you the whole plot right here. We know it's going to be surrounded a character called Danny and the people who gravitate towards him. Uh, the adventures they have, we know it's going to have a tragic end. Um, and, you know, and they're going to do good things. And, and that's a big point, I think, that Steinbeck's trying to make here. He presents these people, flaws and all, and they're all deeply flawed in various ways. But he presents them all as very authentic, very good people at the end of the day, right? Even the worst of these characters that make, often makes the right choice uh, when push comes to sub, when they're really in a moral dilemma. So the novel is in 17 chapters and a preface, um, and we'll try to go through each chapter, and if it comes up, we'll see how we have kind of Arthurian parallels. I'm not really that up on Arthurian legends, so I don't know if there's chapter-by-chapter -chapter parallels to specific stories in Arth Arthurian legend, but I sense... I grok a kind of parallel from time to time. Like This sounds like it's something that would be in an Arthurian romance. Um, so who are our characters? We, well, the three that are mentioned in the preface are Danny, Pallone, and Big Joe Portigy. Now, Big Joe Portigy just shows up in the mid-time, but some of his family members are around earlier. We learn that's because he's in jail for much of the early part of the novel. They were all enlisted in World War I uh, in, quote, comradeship and safety. Danny served as a mule breaker uh, in America. Pallone was in the infantry in Oregon, and Big Joe spent most of the war in jail. None of them went to France, I think, but they all served in the war. Now, it seems that these paisanos spend an awful lot of time in jails. Um, that's just the way it is. Even Danny, our hero, spends time in jail. So our main characters, well, Danny. Danny is kind of the father figure, uh, the King Arthur of our story. He is the central figure because he inherits the homes that the Pisanos live in. Danny is conflicted because, like the others, he rejects work or cannot find work, but he has the responsibility of home ownership. Allowing the others to live there, essentially rent-free, gives him some authority um, and deference and, and respect of the others. And often others, especially Pallone, talks about him with a deal of respect and honor and, and obligation. Uh, they they all often talk about their debts to Danny throughout. Um, a character, Pablo, well, we should probably start with Pallone. Okay, so Pallone, if Danny's the symbolic center of the group, Pallone is the character that's in there in, you know, in the most scenes. He's the instigator of plot. He's the the schemer, the, the one who comes up with the ideas. He's the ideas man, I guess, of the group. Uh, there's later on like a treasure hunt when when we, they say we need some money to pay Danny rent or we need to buy him some wine and we need to help him with this or he's got trouble with the girl, it's always Pallone who kind of comes up with the plan. He's a very earthy figure. He sees prostitutes like most of these people do. He drinks a lot, but, and he's always kind of after wine. But he's also very religious and in some ways he's a successor to Joseph from To Known in that he believes kind of 
he he has a love of the earth anyways he doesn't go as far as joseph does uh, but he has a love of the earth he loves humanity and generally he's a peaceful person he doesn't want his schemes to hurt people and he feels the most obligation to danny of others and he feels the most guilt over not paying rent he's of course the first that moves in so he's he's kind of the the first comrade i don't know it was lancelot the I don't know if that's the right parallel. Like I said, I didn't read Arthurian um, novels much. Next, we have Pablo. Not too much to say about this character. He's there a lot, but he's always in the backdrop. He never really takes too much leadership. He's good friends to the other Paisanos. He doesn't really make much of an impression on me, though. He's the first to join the group uh, after Pallone starts renting. Um, he might have a moral role, and I'm going to think about that a little bit more in the future as we get to the second episode of this. You know, what exactly is Popple's role here? I think he's kind of the, just the good, wholesome friend. He's another good character. Most of these people are, are essentially good and their heart is in the right place. So, um, Jesus Maria Corcoran, he's described directly by Steinbeck as both a humanitarian and a good man. That's that's our, coming straight from our author, but it's certainly right. Um, quote, Jesus Maria was a humanitarian, and kindness was always in him. He cleared his throat and spat. Give me a drink, he said. My throat is dry. I will tell you how it was. He drank dreamily like a man who has so much wine that he can take his time in drinking it. He can even spill a little without remorse. I was sleeping on a beach two nights ago, he said, out on the beach near Sun Seaside. In the night there was little waves washed a rowboat to shore. Oh, a nice little rowboat, and the oars were there. I got in and rowed it down to Monterey. It was easily worth $20, but trade was slow, and I only got 7 I'm telling you how it was. I bought two gallons of wine and brought them up here to the woods, and when I went to walk with Arabelle Gross, for her I bought one pair of silken drawers in Monterey. She liked them, so soft they were and so pink. And then I bought a pint of whiskey for Arabelle. And then I went a while, and we met some soldiers, and she went away with them. End quote. So, this is... A little window, both into Steinbeck's, I think, writing, but we get this character. He, he really does seem to care about other people and, and does what he can. He gets him into trouble from time to time, like like when he plays around with this girl, Arabelle. He gets in fights with uh, the soldiers who are dating her. Our next character is Big Joe Portigy. We don't meet him till the later half of the novel uh, because he's in jail, but he's mentioned early on. So he's put in the front by the, the novel by Steinbeck as an important character. He's quite interesting to me because he's more conscious in his resistance to authority. Um, he seems to have gone into the, the army with a chip on his shoulder uh, towards authority. Quote, If he had been a hero, the Portage would have spent a miserable time in the army. The fact was that he was Big John Portage with a decent training in the Monterey jail. Not only saved him from the misery patriotism thwarted, but solidified his conviction that a man's days are rightly devoted half to sleeping and half to waking. So a man's years are rightfully spent half in jail and half out. Of the duration of the war, George Joe Pet, um, Portage spent considerably more time in jail than out. In civilian life, one is punished for things one does, but in army codes add a new principle to this. They punish a man for things he does not do. Joe Portage never did figure this out. He didn't clean his rifle, he didn't shave, and once or twice on leave, he didn't come back. Coupled with these shortcomings was a propensity Big Joe had for genial argument when he was taken to task. Ordinarily, he spent half his time in jail. Of two years in the army, he spent 18 months in jail. So that's Big Joe Portage. He, he plays a bigger role about halfway through in the novel. 
And then the next guy we have is the pirate. Now, pirate, he's got a bit of Lenny in him, if you've read of Mice and Men. And now, despite the name, the pirate is a very authentic and innocent character. Um, I I'm Actually, I think I missed how he got the name the pirate, if that's just what they called him. Steinbeck says that his body grew faster than his mind, so he's uh, he's got some disabilities, it seems. But he's one of the few people who works. He 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 sells like firewood, and he makes a quarter a day selling firewood. But he doesn't spend it because he lives off like charity of people, and he kind of begs and, and makes money. He's always surrounded by dogs, or like five or six dogs around him, who he loves very much. And uh, his big dream in life is to save up, I think he says a thousand quarters or something. So, you know. What's that? 250 Yeah, $250. He wants to save up $250 to buy gold candles for, for San, San Francisco, St. Francis. Um, so those are our main characters, and they all end up sort of hanging out together and living together in, in Danny's house. Um, so anyways, let's go through these chapters brief, briefly. I, I'm not going to talk too much about each of these. Um, I don't know. They're all just short vignettes, as I said. And we'll start with chapter one. I'll give you the names that, that Steinbeck gives these chapters, though, because they're kind of descriptive, and they hint at the Arthurian uh, parallels he's going for. Okay, chapter one. How Danny, home from the wars, found himself an heir, and how he swore to protect the helpless. So, uh, Danny finds himself in ownership of two homes. He returns from the war. He spends some time in jail. He gets drunk and has to work, sleep it off in the jail. Danny escapes after drinking with the jailer. Uh, so that you got kind of a chummy relationship between the jailer and, and Danny and the prisoners in general, I suspect. But anyways, he, he, when he gets out, he remembers he inherited these two homes from, from I think, his, his grandfather or something like that. On the way home, he runs into Pallone, and they decide to live together in the homes. That's all that happens. It's like five pages, and that's all that happens. A lot of the chapters have this kind of briefness to them, but it's so lazily kind of presented, even though I think there's a lot that happens in the characters' minds and the way they talk about it. and they. But it's, it's just got this very patient um, feel to it, despite being a very tight novel. It's... I'm kind of conflicted about about how to describe this. Anyways, chapter two: How Pallone was lured by greed a position to forsake Danny's hospitality. Well, we get a hint there that Pallone cares a lot about his position in life. He has got the materialistic side to him, and he cares about moving up in the world. He cares about how other people see him, and he cares about well, position might be a too grandiose way of putting it. But he does care about how he's seen um, by others. Eventually, now in this chapter, Pallone starts to rent space on Danny's property because Danny has two two houses on the property, and so there's space for Pallone to rent one. And the idea is that they'll kind of split it. But both know that payment will never come. So instead of money, Danny's going to get friendship. He's going to get various other gifts, often wine, and then it, you know, just as you might suspect, at the end of the chapter, they acquire some wine. Um, you know, this kind of thing happens a lot where he can't pay the rent, so he has like a dollar left or a couple dollars, and he's like, well, Danny would appreciate some wine, so he'll buy him wine. He'll justify not giving him rent by giving him all these other gifts of the little bit of money he's able to come across in the course of his adventures. Chapter 3, how the poison of possessions wrought with Pallone and how evil temporarily triumphed in him. Well, this chapter is basically about Danny and Pallone drinking and fighting. 
And we get a nice little uh, opening passage which shows them doing just that. Quote, Danny walking by heard the noise and joyfully went in. Pallone fell into his arms and placed everything at Danny's disposal. And later, after Danny had helped him to dispose of one of the girls and half of the wine, there was really a fine fight. Danny lost a tooth and Pallone had his shirt torn off. The girls stood shrieking by and kicked whichever man happened to be down. At last, Danny got up off the floor and butted one of the girls in the stomach, and she went out in the door croaking like a frog. End quote. So we got an unfortunate example here of, of abuse of women. There's a lot of intergender fighting in this in this novel. Um, at times, it's women beating up men, but here we got um, a rather kind of malicious striking of 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 this woman. Um, I don't know. It's maybe something we, I need to think about and talk about is how women are presented in this, this novel. So most of the rest of the chapter involves uh, Pallone running into pa Pablo and they work out a deal where basically Pablo will sublet half of uh, his house. Um, of course, they also know that you know he's not going to get rent for him, right? But the basic idea is that Pablo will pay the $15 a month rent and Pallone will pay it to Danny, but both sort of know that rent's not going to flow up. So you got this kind of failed pyramid scheme here where you you got the, the kind of structure of a pyramid scheme, but there's no real confidence that the people on the bottom are going to pay up. This, this nature of this relationship is going to change, though, um, in a little bit in the novel. Um, chapter four, how Jesus Maria Corcoran, a good man, became an unwilling vehicle of evil. So anyways, life settles into a routine for Danny's small group. They discuss a woman, Carnila Ruiz, who is widely seen as a loose woman and who has recently cut the, quote, black Mexican. And here we hear us see a little bit of race consciousness or color consciousness among the characters. We learn that Danny is dating uh, not, not Carnila Ruiz, but the Port Portuguese girl, Rosa Maria. Now, this worries the others because they don't want to lose Danny. And they also worry that if Danny marries, then he'll start insisting on payment of rent, right? It's, you know, he's going to need stuff for his family. In truth, Danny is spending more time and he's really dating with the wealthy Mrs. Morales. Um, she has like $200 in bank and she's an older woman, right? Um, but they seem to get along and... And Danny likes her and she likes him. So it's it's kind of a working relationship. And it's a little bit safer from the perspective of the other Paisanos. But when he suggests buying a gift, Pallone reads this as, she says, I'm going to buy her a gift. And Pallone reads this as, oh, you're asking for the rent money. And he says, you know, he gets a little offended at the suggestion, like, how dare you say I'm not going to pay the rent? Now, Pablo and Pallone are out later on, and they find Jesus Maria in the woods drunk, and they offer to bring him into the group. He has exactly $3, two of which they take to secure a deposit on the rent. So we have kind of a third level of this weird pyramid scheme and three people living in this house. They use the money to buy wine for Danny, and I think there's a whole conversation here where they discuss, well, what should we get for Danny? He wants to have candy to give as a gift to Mrs. Morales, but that will hurt their teeth or you know, give them bad tea. So let's give them wine. Wine will be better for them. It's kind of funny. They're, they're trying to make excuses to, to drink wine all the time. Chapter 5. How St. Francis turned the tide and put a gentle punishment on Pallone and Pablo and Jesus Maria. 
Now, a lot happens in this chapter. It's one of the rare chapters in this book that's kind of, you know, thick with events. But mostly it's still about drinking and women. Pallone and Pablo drink two gallons of wine. We have uh, Miss Torelli who hosts Pallone and Pablo. And they both get kind of rapey here, like slapping her body and, and things like that. Um, Jesus Maria uh, returns to meet them and gives the story of being beaten up for flirting with some soldier's girlfriend. He has actually accidentally, accidentally or he actually bought her this brassiere, this underwear, and this really offended the other soldiers, and he got beaten up. That night, Pablo's candle, dedicated to St. Francis, burns down the house. Um, and they actually go to tell Danny about it. And Danny is with Miss Morales, and he's kind of indifferent to the fate of his house. And here's what he says. Quote, your house is on fire, the one Pablo and Pallone live in. For a moment, Danny didn't answer. Then he demanded, is the fire department there? Yes, cried Jesus Maria. The whole sky was lighted up by now. The crackling of burning timbers could be heard. Well, said Danny, if the fire department can't do anything about it, what does Pallone expect me to do? Jesus Maria heard the window bang shut, and he turned and trotted back towards the fire. It was a bad time to call Danny, he knew. But then, how could one tell? If Danny had missed the fire, he might have been angry. Jesus Maria was glad he had told them about it anyways. Now the responsibility lay on Miss Morales. And then the whole town comes out to watch the fire, all except uh, Danny and I think the other paisanos uh, in Danny's group kind of go off to, to sleep in the woods or something. So that's that chapter. It's, it's one of the longest in the whole book, I think. Chapter 6. How three sinful men, through contrition, attained peace. How Danny's friends swore comradeship. Now here's a real turning point in the relationship. Because all these guys, Pablo, Jesus Maria, and Pallone, all have to move into Danny's house. Right? They all move in there. And that's, they have to come back and kind of confess they destroyed the other house. But they have, they, they're allowed to move in. And the, their, their relationship changes. And we get sort of a feudal f uh, swearing of fidelity at the end of this chapter. So here's one of the stronger Arthurian parallels in my mind. Quote, Before Danny sank completely under the waves of his friends, he sounded one warning. I want all of you to keep out of my bed, he ordered. That's the one thing I must have to myself. Although one mentioned it. Each of the four knew they were all going to live in Danny's house. Pallone sighed with pleasure. Gone was the money of the rent. Gone the responsibility of owing money. No longer was he a tenant, but a guest. In his mind, he gave thanks for burning the other house. We will all be happy here, Danny, he said. In the evenings, we'll sit by the fire and our friends will come in to visit. And sometimes maybe we'll have a glass of wine to drink for friendship's sake. Then Jesus Maria, in a frenzy of gratefulness, made a rash promise. It was the grandpa, grandpa that did it, and the night of the fire, and all the deviled eggs. He felt that he had received great gifts, and he wanted to distribute a gift. It shall be our burden and our duty to see that there is always food in the house for Danny, he declaimed. Never shall our friend go hungry. Pallone and Pablo looked up in alarm, but the thing was said, a beautiful and generous thing. No man could with impunity destroy it. Even Jesus Maria understood, after it was said, the magnitude of this statement. He could only hope that Danny would forget it. For, Pallone mused to himself, if this promise were enforced, it would be worse than rent. It would be slavery. We swear it, Danny, he said. They sat about the stove with tears in their eyes, and their love for one another was almost unbearable. Pablo wiped his wet eyes with the back of his hand, and he echoed Pallone's remark. We shall be very happy living here, he said. Um, and this is a big turning point for our characters when they abandon this pecuniary relationship, this burden of rent between them, 
and instead embrace uh, a real comradeship in uh, a, a real solidarity. Okay, so next chapter, chapter seven. How Danny's friends become a force for good and how they suckered the poor pirate. Now the pirate... The pirate is, is this man whose body outgrew his mind, right? Again, he's a little bit like Lenny, uh, but he's actually one of the few characters who works. He sells wood. Uh, they meet him, and they decide to welcome him into Danny's house, which is already getting crowded, so he'd be the sixth person in there. Uh, the pirate, he's mostly worried about a sickly dog. He had a sick dog who got better, and he, wants to, he thinks San, San Francis kind of saved the dog's life, so he wants to buy these gold candles for St. Francis, so he's been saving his money. Um, he can save this money because he lives off the charity of each other's and each day he gains a quarter from the wood he sells. Now this eventually makes him really one of the richest of the Paisanos. Um, and this is partially Pallone's interest in him as I think he, they want that money into the, into the home. And as it turns out by the end of the chapter, we learn he does have a large sack of coins around close to a thousand. He's almost made it. He's got around $200 actually, uh, in there. There is a very interesting conflict in here about the value of money. For Pallone and Pablo, money is something that must be enjoyed, right? Uh, Pallone's spiritualism is a little bit more naturalistic than, uh, than the pirates, who the pirate, I guess he's more traditional in his beliefs in the, in the saints and all that. Um, but for Pallone and Pablo, money must be enjoyed. The revelation that he's rich is really astonishing to the others, and it's... All right, um, chapter eight. How Danny's friends sought mystic treasure on St. Andrew's Eve. How Pallone found it, and later how a pair of serge pants changed ownership twice. So this chapter is most, it introduces Joe Portigy, who's been kind of out of it for a while, and he just got out of jail. Uh, that's where he's been. He quickly returned to jail after getting out of it because he burned down a whorehouse. Uh, so he got out of jail a second time, and now he's out. Uh, Joe kind of re reintegrated incorporated into this group goes with Pallone on a treasure hunt and they have this treasure hunt this goal of which is to really get a bunch of money for Danny right for the house and to really give Danny what he deserves however the treasure hunt is a failure um, and most of the chapter is involved with this treasure hunt but it's a failure and they only find a marker for a geographical survey set up by the U.S. government they don't even really consider stealing this because the cost of stealing or messing with such a thing is too high, you know, more jail time and huge fines. So they just leave it be. Um, now, there's a kind of a subplot here over this blanket, which Joe stole from Danny, which then Pallone steals from Joe to, to again, buy wine. So this, um, we see Joe as kind of a, a more malicious character to begin with both in his crimes and the fact that he stole something from Danny, which is, of course, pretty morally offensive to Pallone, who has this, this loyalty to him, but he steals it back and then uses it to, to buy wine. So he doesn't give him back the pants, actually. He just uses it to buy wine, and that's how he repairs the damage. Chapter 9, How Danny Was Ensnared by a Vacuum Cleaner and How Danny's Friends Rescued Him. Well, so this is a, a pretty fascinating chapter. So Danny has some copper nails, and he sells them for money. And he doesn't give this money to this, he buys it from kind of like a store owner or something, a vacuum cleaner. It costs him $2, which already seems kind of off. He gives it to this girl he's dating, he's seen, Sweets Ramirez. 
and she has this this house and he's been spending a lot of time there he's kind of falling for her and he wants to give her this gift so he gives her this gift of the vacuum cleaner now sweets takes this vacuum cleaner and she kind of does she, she sweeps the floor and she goes over the floor with the vacuum cleaner uh, this is all kind of funny because there's no electricity in the house right and that's something everyone sort of knows and and at one point you know Danny's Pallone approaches Danny and says you know you need electricity to run that and you don't have that um, now this kind of this wins Danny's favor with this woman, but this bothers the other friends who don't want to lose their don't want to lose their their friend right to a girl. So Pallone approaches him and says, basically, everyone's laughing at you because she's telling everyone that you're going to pay to have the house electrified to, to have electricity, electrical wires brought in. This, of course, spurs Danny into action. He says, OK, uh, what do we do? And Pallone's idea is to like steal the vacuum cleaner away from her. And he does that. He, he actually waits till she's gone, steals the vacuum cleaner and sells it to Tortelli, Tor, 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 Torlini, Torlini, who's the local shopkeeper. He's the guy who sells them wine and he trades it to him. But um, Torlini finds out he's been scammed because the vacuum cleaner actually never had a real working motor. It was just a fake vacuum cleaner the entire time. So that's the reason Danny was able to get it so cheap in the first place. Now here we have the vacuum cleaner, I think, as a symbol of modernity, to be sure, the and a symbol of domesticity. It certainly wouldn't be a good gift now, but in those days maybe as a symbol of modernity, as a symbol of moving on to a new, brighter future. Um, but also it's the symbol of domesticity, and that's one reason it kind of offends maybe the other paisanos is... is you know, because it seems that we might lose Danny to family life, right? And there's throughout this whole novel a tension between kind of normal family life and the life that they're living in the yeah in Tortilla Flat. So I'm going to stop here with this, the chapter reveals. I'll do another episode on Tortilla Flat next time and look at the remaining you know seven eight chapters. The main thing to say about this novel at the halfway point is that these are all basically good people. Yes, they're drunkards. Yeah, they're a bit brutish towards women, and yeah, they're sometimes thieves, but when things matter, they tend to be good, and they care about each other, and they have a real strong friendship. There are some systemic issues to talk about, some about gender, certainly. Um, others are more subtle. Race seems to be a big issue here. As with the Harlem Renaissance novels, we have lots of concerns about the color line. Uh, there's a character in the second half of the novel who you know, is talked about as having too much Indian blood, for instance. And that means considered untrustworthy. The Paisanos like to emphasize their Castilian heritage all the time. Now, the economic backdrop is a little more clear. While these characters may seem lazy, at the same time, there doesn't seem to be much work available. There's not much available in, in the way of work for these people here. There's, there's just really nothing to do. And you don't really see any characters doing much of actual labor here, even the sideline characters. So it's not just this group. The pirate works, but that's not a real like official job for wages, he's only selling firework. There's no electricity in Tortilla Flats, so there's kind of a superstructure of economic um, backwardness here. And of course, this is set during the Depression. Or set, maybe, no, it's set in the 20s. It's a depressionary novel, but, you know, I don't want to get into the history of it, but a lot of parts of the country were in recession pretty much since the end of World War One, And they, you know, it caught up to the more industrial parts in the late 1920s, but much of the more Agrarian parts of America were kind of in an economic slump all the way back into the 20s. 
Now, we do have many Arthurian hints throughout the novel. We have characters vowing loyalty to each other. We have women entrapping men. We have people swooping in to save the day. We have the drafting of new members into kind of a group, into a, a, a community. They live together in a castle together, and they go on quests. So these are all these different Arthurian parallels. As I said, the novel's very short. It's very tight, although not much happens. You know, but the prose is very short. A lot is communicated through through short dialogues and communications between the characters. And everything kind of gives you this lazy feel. And I think that's one reason it takes me so long to get through is you read it and you just you kind of feel you want to have a glass of wine, too. And you just want to relax and listen to the baseball game or something. Maybe this way of writing, this writing style replicates the life in Tortilla Flat. Many of our characters are in conflict. Mostly this is perhaps seen in Pallone, who is material and selfish on the one hand and basically moral on the other. Danny is a reluctant leader who wants to be loyal to his friends, but is easily distracted by women uh, and led on by them. The characters often make the wrong choices, as when Danny decides not to turn on the water, but instead uses the money to buy wine. That's very early in the story. But when push comes to shove, they all tend to make the right choices. This maybe parallels the community, which is also divided between a general goodness and a focus on propriety, but with what may seem to some readers as an excessive openness about sexuality and criminality. There are, for instance, going to whorehouses is not apparently a big deal here. Now, the burden of the home. This serves to bring the gang together under one roof with one sort of mission, to keep this one household afloat and to keep this community together. But it also reflects kind of the life of the Paisanos who see material goods as passing. To lose a home, to lose material, to lose pants, it's all just part of life. Just like, it's, why not drink wine then, right? Wine may only stay with you one night, but that's like everything else in life. We may critique their preference for wine and brandy, but, you know, this is just as passing as most of the things in their world, including their relationships with, with women. Uh, the relationships among men, though, are very enduring and very important. So that's all I want to say about Tortilla Flat. If you have some feelings about this novel, please share them below. Um, I kind of struggled with it. Um, I like it, though. I, I think it's really fun to read and nice, but I, I struggled to kind of give it a meaning in my head. I, you know, whatever. We'll see how I do on the second half. Maybe I can wrap up some ideas. So that's that. Uh, thanks for listening. I will see you next time when we'll finish up with Tortilla Flat.